Ladies and gentlemen, friends and colleagues, my name is Henrik Urdal, and I'm the director of PRIO, the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. It is my pleasure to welcome you all here today for a discussion on the important topic of human rights issues in North Korea. PRIO's mission is to conduct research in the interest of peace. The connection between human rights and peace is a thorny issue for peace research. There are conceptual issues about what we, can, what we mean by peace and what role, con, con, uh, what role concepts of rights and justice should play in characterizing human relations as peaceful. But there are also empirical questions. Some research in this area seems to indicate that a regime's respect for human rights is positively correlated with the peacefulness both internally and of its relations with neighbors. But this is a complex issue. Not least in the relationship between North and South Korea. In South Korean debates on North Korea, there has been a tension between those who would prioritize peace and dialogue and those who insist on taking a, a harder stance on human rights violations. In this debate, is this debate deadlocked, or can research and evidence-based discussion help us find constructive ways forward? I look very much forward to hearing our discussions and our main speaker dive into these difficult but important issues. I'm very happy to welcome our keynote speaker, Dr. Shinwa Lee. Dr. Lee is the uh, Republic of Korea's ambassador for international cooperation on North Korean human rights, and also a professor uh, at Korea uh, University in the Department of Political Science and International Relations. She has held a long list of academic positions at prestigious institutions, as well as uh, senior advisory positions at the UN. Dr. Lee, welcome. Then, uh, responding to Dr. Lee's presentation will be uh, PRIO Research Professor Emeritus Stein Tönneson, one of Norway's foremost experts on East and Southeast Asia, and Ed Brown, Secretary General of Stefanus Alliance International, a Christian human rights organization with a special focus on freedom of religion and belief. Chairing today's discussion will be uh, PRIO Senior Researcher Dr. Ilaria Carossa, who is an expert on China's foreign policy, uh, and is currently leading a Norwegian Research Council-funded project on the Digital Silk Road Initiative. And just before giving the floor to you, uh, Ilaria, I just want to say that this session will be taped and, uh, and also put out uh, on the web. So uh, just so you know, for the QA session, that, uh, that there will be uh, this um, uh, presentation and, and whole session will be uh, made uh, publicly available, as is the... Uh, default uh, at PRIO, since we want to make sure that these discussions are reaching a broader audience. Then, Ilaria, the floor is yours. Thank you all for coming. Hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Henrik, for the uh, introduction. And I think uh, since you've introduced me, without further ado, I'll give the floor to Ambassador for her um, um, remarks, and then we can all sit together uh, on the stage afterwards for our discussion. Please. Thank you very much. I am honored to be here today. Uh, this is, I think, a uh, fourth time I visited the PRIO. Uh, the first one was in 1993. You know, the, this year is the 75th anniversary of UN Declaration on Human Rights and 10th anniversary of the establishment of Commission of Inquiry on North Korea and the 30th anniversary of myself the visiting uh, the PRIO. Uh, 30 years ago, I just came here first time. And at that time, I was uh, giving some different lectures in here while you folks are uh, inviting uh, scholars from Africa and South Asia. So I was talking about ethnic conflict and peace building and the environmental refugee issues. Um, at that time, I remember the Dan Smith, who was your former uh, president, and Henrik, uh, said, oh, you're the first Korean person who's talking about, uh, who's talking about non-Korean issues. So he said, oh, well, I, I would love you to be here. So I ended up with uh, almost uh, one and a half month here. So I enjoyed the uh, thoroughly at that time. But I came back here 30 years after, right? O of course, I just came here in between. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about Korea, but North Korea, right? 
Well, this it's not a good way to talk about very grim reality in the morning, but unfortunately, that's what I have to do it. But I'll try to be as uh, short as possible so that we can have a more discussion about this. And yesterday, as I told uh, Torun, my good friend from the United Nations, um, I, we were stuck at the airport uh, almost three and three or four hours. So I decided, because of the c complication of the, the thunderstorm and the strike in Paris airport, uh, so I decided to write up some memo. So that turned out to be the big slide. So I will leave it to you so that if you're interested in, you are more than welcome to uh, use it. So this is a kind of thing I would like to mention it. You know, I'm a, as I, as I got introduced, I'm also the professor of international security. So I always think about the, how global security is related to this or that. So it, this was an exception. This is an exception when I even took this job. So I tried having a, what is the human right abuses and the, the security nexus I can see in uh, North Korean uh, situations. But still, I think I have to briefly tell you what we mean by the North Korean human right issues briefly. The first is the human right condition, human right abuses by the Kim Jong-un government within North Korea. So that's what I'm saying, so right to food and health and information and uh, the freedom of the expression, there's a zero almost, right? And also they are have uh, uh, the very terrible political prison, <coughs> prisoners camps are there as well. And the second is the North Korean people outside the North Korea, what I call the North Korean defectors, uh, mostly found now in China and to some extent uh, uh, the Russia and Mongolia and Southeast Asian part. And then overseas laborers, uh, it's about 100,000 overseas laborers are there. Um, uh, but uh, what happened was uh, according to the UN sanction because of their missile and the nuclear test, those people were required to return to North Korea by the end of uh, 2019, uh, according to the U 2017 uh, UN sanction. But COVID-19 came, so they got stuck in 40 plus different countries. It ended up with 100,000. But they turned out to be cash cow for Kim Jong-un government because they uh, like uh, earned 200 to 300 million uh, dollar um, per year, there was just good amount, great amount of money, and they were told that that amount is uh, second next to their first uh, the income revenue. That was the cyber hacking. The cyber hacking is seven hundred million dollars, and then this one is the second. So now, uh, as the the border is start to reopen, I think Kim Jong Un from this this year he tried to say we should send more uh, the laborers. Uh, to outside, but you can say the condition of those peoples are akin to the modern uh, slavery because of their working 11 to 12 hours and 80%, if not more, of their salary has to go to their own government. Uh, and uh, they they are always having under surveillance and, and et cetera. And then third point is uh, South Koreans, Japanese, and foreign nationals who are abducted or detained by North Korean regime. So I think we have to at least think about those three components, although this list are not uh, the, by any means uh, exhaustive or all-inclusive, but I think it's still it's very important to uh, mention about that. But in the interest of time, I will only mention about human rights condition within North Korea today, and if you want to talk with me about second and third point later on, I would be happy to talk with you as well. When it comes to North Korea, I have to tell you the two faces. This is the kind of the things what global media is interested in. I understand that after I finish this talk, I'm going to have an interview with uh, one of the, your largest the newspaper or media. So I would love to talk about another uh, face of the North Korea where we don't have uh, enough attentions to it. So look at Kim Jong-un's and his father. He's the third 
you know, third generational uh, dynastic succession, which is ridiculous, and all those military issues. And uh, in, in Pyongyang, capital city, they even have all those high-rise things and you know, the water aquarium, although we don't know the, what is going on exactly in inside the building with a uh, lack of water and uh, no elevator. So uh, oftentimes they say they have to walk up to 65th floor every day or something like that. But anyway, this is their glory part. But this is what, what uh, we are usually missing, uh, particularly under the Korean's progressive government uh, period over the past five years. We don't talk about this part in interest in, in, in consideration of our relation with the North Korean regime. But anyway, you can see the concentration camp or labor camp or the prisoners camp and those poor kids, beautiful kids, but still they're almost, you know, uh, starved to death. So this is the kind of, and also this is a kind of the small market the where the people try to get by for, for the things. So this is kind of two North Korean faces. So we have to pay attention. Then what happened in the, the in North Korea? According to Freedom House survey last year, uh, out of the 100, uh, their freedom uh, index is the only three. Political right is zero point, and then civil right is three points. And the democracy index, what uh, the UK-based uh, EIU was talking two years ago, uh, there's a 10 is the score and 1.08 uh, is uh, the, the North Korea. By the way, the U Norway is uh, the over 9 out of 10. And they are the number 165th. As only they have a two uh, more competitive to find the worst position is Myanmar and Afghanistan. So human rights issue in North Korea, as I mentioned, all those limited freedom and all those things. But uh, UN, uh, the North Korea has a six UN convention they already ratified. However, uh, it's for more focusing on women and children and disabled. But special UN special rapporteur of the disabled, some six years ago, were managed to visit the, 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 the Pyongyang alone. Otherwise, other one is more likely lip service. So I would say this is a selective and uh, and ritual participation and implementation. But you know, at large, universal human right is completely disregarded in the countries. Right to food. I have to tell you that for entire North Korean, 25 million North Koreans, uh, for them, 5.8 million tons of food are required annually. Uh, chronically, 800,000 tons uh, are uh, the, in short. And this year is a bit worse because about the, those long-running three years of COVID-19 closures and also poor harvest. And they have already suffered from poor harvest, but the central authorities are forcing the collection from the, the agriculture or ordinary people under the name of the, you have to provide the rise of patriotism to central authority uh, for the glory of the country or whatsoever. And also they are strictly banned on individual grain trainings. So although they have a little bit of a supply of rice, they are not allowed to having any kind of a private trading. We know, in theory, they're supposed to distri distribute to the all uh, citizens uh, for food, right? But that is already collapsed in since the what I call what we call arduous march in late 1990s. So virtually those individual ordinary people has to have to find out a way to get their own money uh, and also the, the food. But it was banned on individual grain uh, training. It was uh, like a big blow uh, for them. Uh, to get a shortage. So all areas except the capital city Pyongyang and the largest trade port city Nampo uh, all are faced from, uh, are suffer from now food shortages. So according to the, some informant I, I've been uh, talking, uh, they are only eating uh, pine bark and potato peelings and kind of shiregi uh, porridge. So there was a situation pretty bad. So that uh, often they have an increasing rate of the, the crime rate simply to robbery the food. And also they sometimes abandon their elder uh, the parents in the mountainside. And um, usually the North Koreans are notorious for the military diversion for international humanitarian aid. That means they gave a priority to distribute the food to the military and those who are working for strategic goods. But even those people are now complaining this is why for uh, the situations. And one grim rumor is about uh, one or a couple of the military men that killed the civilians and they ate the flesh, part of the flesh, and even, <laughs> even sold the part of them. 
but it was disgusting. But um, but it's still the rumor by the defectors. But that at least like indicate a very serious condition of the North Korea. They must have a solution. They have to reopen Changmadang, that is a private string market for private private grain trade, and they have to resume ex and to receive the external support. But the more interesting for Kim Jong Un regime is to uh, try to control the the number of the people dying of uh, starvation. So they try to control that, uh, and also they are more interested in regime security itself. So that there are a lot of requirement before they re fully reopen the border. So food situation is pretty bad now. And as I will mention, uh, and that's my uh, also the main topic for today is uh, there have a strong correlation with uh, North Korean military aggression and human rights abuse including the food shortage problems. I don't think I will have enough time to talk about this part. Right to health and right to information is also problematic. You know, the North Korean government pledged for free medical treatment for all uh, North Koreans. But same thing happened for health and also food. There are a few elite groups, including Kim Jong-un family, uh, enjoy the ravish life and luxurious goods and everything. And you may heard that his daughter, the, his uh, nine or 10 year old daughter was wearing Christian Dior, uh, the, 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 the jackets, right? Um, so while they're doing it, ordinary people doesn't have uh, much access to public health care system. So they are depending on, <coughs> I call, <coughs> on scientific folk remedies. As a matter of fact, I was told the North Korean official health authority advised them to drink willow water or wearing galling mask responding to COVID-19 treatment or the preventions. And right to information, that's what I call three evil laws uh, was acted within less than, uh, I got only for within two, two years. Reactionary ideology, cultural rejection, youth education guarantee, Pyongyang cultural language things. In short, what it is is they strictly prohibit uh, the, the ordinary peoples, including teenagers, from watching South Korean drama and TV. As you know, the, those K-drama and K-things are very popular now, right? And also, if they speak uh, the South Korean language style, then they will uh, <coughs> subject to harsh penalties. If they distribute those uh, content, then you can even uh, <coughs> like, uh, subject to uh, death penalty as well. So when we ask them, um, I, I, I didn't ask themselves, but that's from the, our one of the international NGOs who's, work, who's having uh, the interview with them, said, uh, <coughs> oh, then uh, it must be hard for you now to watch Korean drama or, uh, you know, like uh, using the South Korean language style. And those the youngsters say, no way. We need a little bit more caution. If I don't talk with my students and, and my friend <coughs> about the Korean drama, or if we, if we don't imitate South Korean language style, what else I can do with my friends? Do you want me to talk with my friends today because we don't have anything to eat, so I didn't eat anything? I don't want to say those things. I want to talk about South Korean drama. I want to just to, you know, imitate the South Korean uh, language, something like that. So that indicates the creeping capitalism influence is already there. Over the past one year, uh, as a capacity of the ambassador of the International Cooperation on North Korean Human Rights, I, I was interviewed with uh, some 50 defectors in high ranking to the ordinary North Koreans who fled to North, South Korea. Interestingly, <clears throat> all of them, it depends on the uh, how much is different, but all of them had an opportunity or experience to watch South Korean drama or talk show. So you can indicate that is the creeping capitalist influence, no matter how harsh those, the North Korean law uh, imposed upon their people. So I think that is also the irony for the stronger they crack down for those things, that means uh, the stronger the regime's apprehension or the fear of the external information flow. So I think, I don't think today we are not talking about information flow thing, but I think influential inf information inflow into uh, North Korea is the one of the best way uh, for them to, to, to change. So challenges are uh, those things, but that I will skip it, but guess I'm gonna talk about that for what we should do. Uh, military provocation, human rights abuses nexus. 
When it comes to North Korean issue, North Korean questions, according to the Stanford uh, survey, 90% plus is uh, tend to focusing on nuclear issues, both academic and policy journal. And only eight to nine percent on human rights abuses are uh, contribute to, uh, I mean, devoted to <coughs> the, the academic journals and etc. So as I just said, President Henry Udo, uh, I think this is time for us to, to write, not only speak, but write about those North Korean human rights issue in comparative perspectives or uh, what kind of the link they can have for human rights abuses and the peace and securities. I think we have to do that. And President Yoon Song yeol uh, last April, when he made a state visit to U.S., he was highlighting, say, North Korea's obsession with nuclear weapon and missile is throwing its population into a severe economic crisis and human rights abuses that indicate that our government is very much interested in how we can delink those military provocation and human rights issues nexus. <clears throat> and according to the Ministry of Unification of South Korea, over 100 missiles was fired uh, since 2000. 22, and uh, 71 missile launches only the last year alone. You know, that is equivalent to the cost of 1 million ton of food. You remember I said chronically uh, they have 800,000 plus ton of uh, food is missing. But if they didn't fire those 71 missile, then we could will feed all North Koreans, and then we can even have uh, with us some surplus as well. An international food security assessment report says 70% of North Korean face food shortages. I want you to remember only Pyongyang and Nampo uh, has, a, has not much problem on food shortage, but all other areas have been big problems. And then the U.S. RAND Institute is working on security issues. Said that it cost of North Korea's 25 short-range missile launches last year is worth a year worth of rice import from China. I don't think uh, nobody knows exactly what is going on in North Korea, so those statistics might be wrong, but more or less you can get some ideas for how desperate the North, North Korean people could be because of those kind of military provocations. And the sixth nuclear test has been uh, conducted since 2006. The Pungeri is uh, close to the northern part of the Hamgyong, uh, Hamgyongdo in, uh, in Korea, South North Korea. Uh, those people who live nearby uh, have a Suspectively, have a radioactive the exposures concerns because of those the, the the test, and also some scientists also argue about the ground groundwater contamination is also plausible. So all those things are also closely related to the human rights abuses, in my opinions. Therefore, we have to say North Korea human rights and security is a parallel challenge. North Korea has a uh, history. Historical records, blending of the human rights with politics. In 2011 to 2012, when the Six Party talk is still alive, uh, <clears throat> they've been uh, struggle with economic uh, things under Kim Jong Un's father's period, as a Kim Jong Il period, because they made a, a currency reform, but that turned out to be a total failure. And that, that led to the serious economic problems. And the North Korean tried to bargain with the, South, the, the, the international community, particularly U.S. Okay, we will go back to your six-party talk. That is a political matter, right? And then they just want to negotiate for request for the food aid. That is a kind of human rights concerns. Another thing I can tell you is that 2009, the Bill Clinton visited Pyongyang to rescue two journal U.S. journalists. And uh, North Koreans found that that is pretty interesting for them to give us some embarrassments to US president and, and also let them talk with them. And also that somehow they found is boost the, their international profile. So since then, 16 uh, American were detained and they tried to have a same practice. So they bring the high officials of the United States to come over to uh, the, the US and then bring them back. So they kind of enjoy to brand up the human rights with the political issues. The second, I have to tell you that as long, no matter exactly what happened in North Korea, as long as Kim Jong-un remains in power, there is a fair chance for North Korea to give up nuclear uh, the, the, the ambitions. I think they want to be a, even stronger, uh, the nuclear-armed country, so that they can directly negotiate with the United States. So that will like, uh, cause uh, lots of the humanitarian and human rights problems of the North Koreans. Unfortunately, U.S.-China's uh, great power rivalry is increasing, but that gave a great opportunity for North Korea to juggle, 
to increase their leverage. So that they tacitly granted the impunity to North Korea because it, the, the China, although they don't want North Korea become a nuclear state, that's why they've been a very active with having six party talk and all others. But now, uh, because their dear enemy is the U.S., right? So that they to tackle with those issues, they want to give a little bit more empowerment to the North Korean regime, unfortunately. The third is, therefore, China's role or position in this issue both nuclear issue and human rights issue is very important to, to find some solution. But unfortunately, U.S. is now leading for human rights advocacy in North Korea, particularly since the Biden administration. So that might inadvertently reproduce U.S.-China competition, even in the realm of the human rights. So that now they are just struggling over political, diplomatic, and nuclear matters, and then and maybe human rights will be issue will be the another area of tension and conflict between the, the U.S. and China. Um, and complicity of China and Russia is also the the problematics. You know, as I said, according to the Freedom House survey, uh, the, the those freedom uh, index, the, the freedom score of the North Korea is three out of hundred, right? And China share the vulnerability of that. They only marked on the, the nine out of hundred as well. And uh, I had an, uh, the more than couple of the opportunity to to speak in, in at the United Nations, both in Geneva and New York. Oh gosh, Russia and China as the representatives usually uh, either minister or vice minister is coming to the the, the talk. They are so uh, supportive of the North Korea's position because they think it is a clear infringement the infringement on infringement upon the sovereign state, and also even Russian uh, deputy uh, the. Minister in last October in the in New York in the third committee of the, the UN General Assembly said, "Look, who dare to talk about the North Korean human rights uh, violation? They have uh, zero percent of uh, the illiteracy and zero percent of uh, unemployment." So after the meeting, you know, the some of the it, it's not from the 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 the, the Korea. There's some country persons was talking about. Oh, they might count the laborers who are working in the prison prisoners camp. So it was sad joke, but I mean, you know, that is the their their complicity is pretty serious, and the less visible and less attentive uh, the North Korean human rights issues. As I said, more than ninety percent is only focusing on nuclear issue, while less than ten percent is for the human rights issues. Right. So when it comes to the nuclearization issues, uh, human rights has to be ready to be sidelined. I think that practice has to be changed now. So thank God, uh, the, both the President Yoon Suk Yeol and President Biden uh, agree that uh, those two uh, issues are parallel challenges so we have to address uh, the simultaneously. And it's a more controversial means like uh, when you go to the, uh, the United Nations, in the UN, as we know, uh, that's the kind of the places where we have we we try to find some global goods, right, together. But unfortunately, it is clearly divided now. So oftentimes we're talking about relevance of the United Nations. Unfortunately, human rights issues should be the universal value, but that turned out to be very politicized, both in South Korea and outside of uh, the country, in particular in the, the United Nations. Um, and uh, international corporations, what to do. I think uh, define and institutionalize what we mean by those human rights is very important. The particularly, uh, the, as I mentioned, uh, three items I was talking in the very beginning, right? Uh, that is by no means exhaustive, but still we have to line up what we have to do and what at least we have to make a consensus over the, what kind of issue we have to address together. So, as I said, everybody can talk about it, but no one knows the exact fact. Therefore, there are speculations and controversy. So it's easy for uh, politicize those issues, uh, uh, particularly those politicians to make their own gain. A human rights issue is not, however, on and off switch, depending on domestic or international political condition, uh, because as I keep saying, the nuclear provocation, missile provocation on one hand, and the human rights abuses on the other hand, so that is a two sides of the same coin. Why? Because the Kim Jong-un government is only interested in their regime uh, security. So externally, they want to build up more military to get their, their bargaining powers vis-a-vis -vis US and others. But internally, they need more tight control, right? So that uh, those ordinary people cannot rebel or press 
protest against the, 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 the Kim Jong-un government. Therefore, there is human rights abuses. So unless those regime uh, is uh, something happens to the regime, it might be very hard to change. But, but, but to be clear, I'm not talking about here regime change because it's going to be too complicated as well. Like because they are already very missile and nuclear strong countries and where US, China, and the Russia's uh, interest is all different. So we have to find some solutions for what we should do with this regime. But however, in the beginning is probably disseminating and also raising the awareness of what is going on in North Korea, what we call shedding light on fact or truth will be the very beginning and effective way to find some solutions for those people who are suffering from uh, those human rights, basic human needs, unfortunately, by their own government. For that, I think accountability is the important. For that, monitor, report, document for prosecuting, criminalizing, and punishing perpetrators are very important. That will be also a preventive effect. I can give you one thing. Last year, or after 77 years, 101-year-old Nazi, uh, the, the, the German man who served for Nazi sentenced to five years prison terms. That means there's no impunity for those crime against humanity. That's exactly what happened for Kim Jong-un. So I think we have to constantly remind those North Korean people, particularly North Korean elite groups, if you do those things now, then there's no impunity for you until the, until the death. I think that is very important. Um, UN Security Council should resume uh, their uh, public or open debate on UN human rights. Um, we, you know, there are five permanent members and 10 non-permanent member, members, right? Uh, the veto power didn't work for this kind of discussion, but we needed nine affirmative votes required in order to open up the North Korean human rights issue in UN Security Council in public format. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that happened on, from 2014 to 2017, and then afterwards, the, uh, the Korea and the Moon Jae-in government and then and the U.S. Uh, Trump government, and they are very busy with uh, the North and U.S. Uh, summit meetings, so that the meeting, uh, open meeting was gone. Not only open meeting, but closed meeting was gone at that time. Uh, but 2020, we managed to having uh, informal meetings, but now is the time for us to open up for the open meetings. Uh, but we are working on it now, but still, I think eight affirmative votes are secured for now. Uh, one more vote is required by the July. Uh, you know what happened in 2014? That was the February 2014. The COI report was released. That garnered lots of international attention. That leading to open discussion at UN Security Council. So we need some kind of international attention so, so that the UN member state can do something for us. Uh, China and Russia not forcibly uh, repatriate North Korean uh, defectors is also very important. As I said, upon the reopening of the border, um, the, according to the UN Special Rapporteur's report, uh, about the 2,000 North Korean people who are uh, in, in the border areas are now for subjects to the first repatriations to the, the, the North Korea, where the punishment or tortures and even death are waiting for them. Uh, you know, the COI report is uh, more, the, the more than 400 pages. They have a beautiful recommendations. And since 10 years, nothing much changed, unfortunately. But still, that, that had a great um, contributions to the revitalizing uh, the, the international attentions for North Korean human rights issues. And as I said, as we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of the release of the report next February, I want to uh, tell you that it's important. We don't need another 400 pages COI report, but maybe it's short, but in, 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 uh, influential the report is required uh, because the Kim Jong-un went to power December 2011. For the first one year, or a little bit less than one year, he tried to open up the country in many ways because he was educated in Switzerland. But it only take less than one year for him to realize if he open up the, re, uh, the country, that his regime security will be in danger. So he closed up. So he closed up and he did all those atrocities. 
that is the uh, end of the 2012 or 2013 he started. So that happened to coincide with COI plus 10. So I would like to uh, spend some time for this year or next year for uh, to making some, some uh, articles and uh, report to criti criticize Kim Jong-un's decade of unruly uh, the regime who, whose human rights uh, accusation was even grimmer and even terrible than his father and the grandfather's. I, I don't think I'm talking about constructive engagement today, but I just noticed a couple of you are from international organization who are focusing on the humanitarian assistance. So I, let me just tell you briefly. Well, although my uh, priority is given to accountability of North Korean regimes, I just want to also highlighting importance of the constructive engagement. When I say constructive engagement, I don't mean I want to go back to uh, the previous South Korea's previous government practice, where he the, the government didn't talk about North Korea human rights abuses, but he only the, the, the government only talked about the humanitarian assistance in consideration of uh, the, our special so-called special relation with North Korea. I I don't mean I would want to revert to that area. But the reason I'm talking about constructive engagement, including humanitarian assistance, is humanitarian assistance is the crucial means to improve the human right and daily life or human needs of North Korea's ordinary people. Because of that, we need that. For that, South Korea alone can do anything because North Korea will reject anyway. And then, as I said, more than 80 to 90% of those international humanitarian um, assistance will divert it to the elite and the military, and et cetera. Therefore, I think a very concerted and collective and unitary international assistance based on the principled approach is very important to increase this constructive engagement, including humanitarian assistance. For that, monitoring, preventing, discouraging military diversion or uh, those personal use of the elite of international humanitarian aid is important. Then what we should do? I think we have the mainstream human rights in negotiating with North Korea, including nuclear, nuclear talks. You know, if they shut down the political prison camp and the increase information access, and if they guarantee fair distribution of food aid, that will indicate North Korea's regime is willing to open or foster international trust. That can give them opportunity for shift from a huge state to a normal state. Number two is putting human rights agenda in the first stage of denuclearization process. I think that's what we failed. The Trump government, Moon Jae-in government failed for that. Therefore, we give a more opportunity for North Korea to maneuver about those things. So if we start to go, if we restart to talk about denuclearization process and others, I think we have to put human rights agenda in the very first, in the first stage, so that we can verify the denuclearization process. Because even if we talk about denuclearization agreement, you know, we have to monitor. You remember, they they were, they became a MPT and they agreed for IAEA come to the, the Pyongyang and the North Korea, but they just having a very uh, restricted access to the areas so that uh, agreement was broken down. So to verify the new process would be challenging as North Korea would likely hide their human rights and uh, other failings so that we have to put that in as a priority in the beginning, in the very beginning. And third, improving human rights leading to economic benefit. We have to tell them that is true. Because even if we somehow making a political bargain, no, uh, unless they improve their human rights condition, Western company wouldn't invest uh, the in North Korea. Then why human rights should be mainstream in the process of international efforts to promote peace and security? Well, this is uh, still, uh, for me, under progress. Uh, I, have to, uh, I have to just making some more logic. But it briefly, once again, all those human rights, peace, security should be in indivisible link. And also, that is the best way to uh, promote trust and the cooperation. And because the promoting inclusion and participation by prioritizing the human rights encourage some environment and representation of all, all North Korean peoples, that will help address the social grievances and finally prevent the conflict. 
uh, for that, I think we need a comprehensive, holistic approach to engaging both the military and non-military non issues together. That extends beyond the mere absence of conflict, but encompassing the presence of justice and equality. That's what we're talking about in the UN peace building uh, the committees are talking about as well. And then fifth is the sustainable development can be released to the, the, the peace and security based on the, the, the protect, protection and promotion of the human rights. So, Norsko and violating citizens' rights threaten peace and regional stability. The previous government and the China-Russia support only spoiled and emboldened Kim Jong-un, so that as a, as a result now, they become even stronger nuclear armed state. And then inter-Korean relation and U.S.-North Korea relation get worse than ever. And then their human rights condition is much harsher than before. So that I think our uh, previous approach was wrong. So North Korea's prioritization, regime security, and disregard for international norm necessitate the human rights issues. So recognize a link between those two issues, the security and human rights issues, based on freedom and democracy is pretty crucial. Upholding principle of no impunity based on international community, consolidating cooperation, Korea, US, EU cooperation that is a like-minded country like us is very important. Because it is important because, as I mentioned, North Korea as a member state of the United Nations, it's very hard for UN to do something. And increasing financial and other influence of China and Russia is also a challenge. And Russia always on the world of my way as well. Therefore, we like consolidation and cooperation are among like-minded countries. Effort is very important, not only for North Korea human rights issue or nuclear issue, but all other global security and peace issues. Having said that, I would sum summarize the integration of human rights into the promotion of peace and security not only aligns with international norms and principles, but significantly enhance the effectiveness and sustainability of these efforts. So in this process, once again, we like-minded countries have to get together for our cooperation and try to make a unitary and principled approach to deal with all global problems, including North Korean human rights issues. But in the process, I have to tell you that all unlike-minded countries as bad country. We couldn't say that. They simply have a different idea, different priority, different positions. Then for us, how to persuade and how to engage with unlike-minded countries is very important, particularly what I call swing state. In Korea, chungan state. Chungan means in the middle. Not middle power, but middle. Those middle countries, like a swing state, appears to be more and more fluctuate depending on their interest or their position or regional international circumstances, right? So how we can engage with those swing states is very crucial things while we like-minded countries getting together to improve North Korean human rights issues and global emergencies. Thank you, and I'll stop here. Thank you so much, uh, Ambassador Lee, for raising a lot of interesting um, points to discuss and, and, and also for linking you know, the domestic issue of human rights abuses in, um, in the country to international issues such as peace and security. Uh, I'd like to invite Stein and Ed to offer some comments before we open up the discussion. Stein, you want to go first? Thank you very much. <coughs> and thank you so much, Ambassador Lee, for your extremely interesting and constructive uh, talk to us today. Uh, it's really a pleasure to have this chance to meet with you. Um, I uh, would like to add perhaps to the anniversaries that you mentioned in the beginning that it's 10 years since the Commission was established by the UN Human Rights Commission to study human rights in North Korea and they came up with a very long report which is um, a really horrible reading. I remember the impression it made on me, and that was briefly before I made my first and only visit to North Korea. Um, <coughs> I'm sorry. Those authors are very proud of it. Yes. Um, I'll um, speak about my two minds about um, human rights violation in North Korea. 
the first, my first mind is the one that is abhorred by the situation in North Korea. I think that it's probably the most repressive place in the whole world. I would compare it to the situation in Xinjiang, but in Xinjiang, Xinjiang is perhaps more systematic, even more systematic, but it's also on a richer economic level. So it's not perhaps as deadly as it is in North Korea. And the other problem also is that we know so little about it. Much has come out through interviews with defectors and refugees from North Korea, but now more than ever North Korea is extremely isolated, so it's very difficult to get out news. And this, on this side, I think it's a travesty that we talk as much as you mentioned about nuclear arms, 80% or more, and so much less about human rights. There should be more talk, constant awareness of the human rights violations in North Korea. And your idea of uh, monitoring specific human rights abuses, making them public, and making them also prosecutable in the future. I think I share that very much. Then uh, I have another mind which, where, which asks, what is the most likely solution for North Korea? What is most likely to change the situation in North Korea uh, and open up the regime? in a way that gets out news and that reduces the human rights violations. And here I'm not sure that a broad attack on North Korea for its human rights violations is the mechanism that is going to bring about that change. I think the change is rather brought about by rapprochement with the North Korean regime on issues of peace. So as an academic, I see a dilemma where you perhaps see you, your proposal is to mainstream human rights into the um, talks also about nuclear issues. I'm skeptical to that. Uh, I think what is needed internationally is some kind, and also in South Korea, is some kind of division of labor where we must strengthen all organizations that monitor human rights abuses in North Korea, and at the same time engage with the Kim Jong-un administration in ways that have been done in the past. And I have a question to you about um, South Korean monitoring of human rights violations in North Korea. Have there been changes in the level of repression according to the various changes in opening or closing. For instance, 2017 was a year with extreme uh, conflict between the United States and North Korea, and with this harangue between Trump and Kim Jong-un. That should perhaps be a period with very strong repression. 2018 was a period of opening up because there were talks. And I noticed at a meeting I attended in Beijing, where there were also North Korean presence, a totally different tone from the North Korean representatives from before. They felt elated by some kind of greater freedom to, uh, to speak out and speak their mind in a public audience. And then after that, there has been a new complete isolation. Um, the two minds I have spoken about in my head, which I have difficulties in reconciling, I also see present in South Korean politics, where conservatives care about human rights in North Korea, and liberals care very little. Uh, I share your ambition to depoliticize this and create some kind of consensus but where you, your proposal is to, as we said, to mainstream it into the same discourse, I suggest that the best way is to have some kind of division of labor. I don't think it's President Yun's task to attack North Korea for human rights, uh, human rights abuse. 
His task is to explore every chance to open up channels in order to talk with North Korea about the nuclear issue and also, when possible, discreetly about human rights. But that effort will also be helped if civil society organizations and the UN system and perhaps also other members of the Korean government who are not the president or the foreign minister, um, that they um, have responsibility for bringing attention to human rights violations. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Stein. Um, I think before I give you the floor again to respond to Stein, I wonder if Ed has some comments to your remarks, but now perhaps also to Stein's um, points. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> let me be brief. I see our time is running in front of us, so I won't take a lot of time. But um, I'd like to be begin with one of my favorite philosophers, uh, uh, Winnie the Pooh, and he says, yes, thanks, both. And it's a little bit following up on what we've said here. Uh, I think we need to think in terms of this distribution of responsibility. I think this is a smart way of, of thinking. It's not an either-or either situation. My work in human rights, often I find people putting rights against one another, uh, creating a conflict and saying we need to find the right that's more important and trump the one right with the other. Um, whereas uh, my good friend Heiner Bielefeld, the former Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Original Brief, he has said our task, especially a state's task as a duty bearer, is to maximize both rights. So how can we find ways in which we, uh, we can maximize freedom, justice, and security? And that's not easy. That's not an easy task. And, and, and then a few questions I'd like to ask is, um, North Korea is a mafia state. So, so it's, it's, it doesn't function as a normal state in, in any sense. And, and as you pointed out, uh, what, was it, what did you say, $700 million come in through uh, cyber hacking. I think there's something similar in, in the production of, of drugs, uh, counterfeit US dollars. So in, in many ways, it's, a, it's not just a rogue state. It's a mafia state. It's, it's a criminal state. Um, and it, and it um, benefits from this. And I think regime perpetuation is what is the main task of Kim Jong-un and was his, of his father before him. And, and removing or asking him to step down, it's just not going to happen. And so we're stuck in that dilemma. So I think maximizing freedom, justice, and security, uh, not an easy task to move forward. And then the next question that I need to ask is, who is going to pay for this? Who in the international community is willing to put up the money? Uh, if we look at the reunification of uh, West and East Germany, it cost a lot of money, but the situation was much, much better than it is in North Korea. Is the South Korean government going to have to take on this responsibility itself if there's some sort of reunification in the future? Uh, I think there should be some broad coalitions that are working on financing uh, for the future for a reunification process. Because even if under the best conditions where there's an amiable, a peaceful reunification, it's going to cost billions of dollars to do. And somebody needs to, to look into that as we move forward. I'll stop there. You're making my job a lot easier, um, also because you asked so many questions already. Ambassador Lee, would you like to respond and then we can uh, open up in the final minutes of this seminar? I think, let me start with uh, your questions first. There are a saying in, within Korea, uh, which was uh, heavier? I mean, unification cost or division cost? It's been, what, more than 75 years we've been apart, been apart. It's not simply economic terms, but cultural, social, and ideological terms. I think it caused a lot of things. So probably it was young people in South Korea. Uh, you know, I was born in developing countries. But my, my son and their generation, MZ generation of South Korea, was born in advanced country. So <laughs> that, that was a joke, but nobody left. <laughs> so their mentality might be different from what we have. So if we, I don't make any survey, but uh, if we made a survey, I don't know whether they really need a unification is our, uh, the, the objectives for the country's prosperities. So we have to be very careful about it. And uh, I got your point very well. Because, for instance, speaking of the use of the German unification, the, the West Germany, who was much richer than South Korea, 
unified with uh, East Germany, who is much less poorer than North Korea. And also, they've been communicating each other to some extent, but they, it takes more than 20 years for them to somehow manage the situation. So it might take uh, more than two to three generations for us. And as you may know, those poor kids, beautiful but poor kids, uh, they, they and the, the South Korean kids appear to be different race because uh, they are at least uh, 10 centimeters shorter than the, the Korean, South Korean kids, right? So we know those things, and who pays for that? Uh, I think international community has to pay, but in reality, I think more burdens are on South Korea. Because I don't know whether you remember in 1994 when U.S. and uh, North Korea made a big bargains for Kido process, uh, the, 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 the agreed framework, right? Uh, 70, more than 70% of the, the cash has to come out of the South Korean pocket. And then 10% from Japan or so. And US only bore the, only the administrative cost. That's what I was told. Even when we having a problem of the financial aid in 1997, we have to pay that amount to keep our peace and prosperity issue of the, the, the Korean Peninsula under Kim Jong, Kim Dae-jung government. So I'm worried about it. But um, still, I think we have to give a try for soft landing. And as I said in my presentation, I don't seek regime change for now. Uh, it would be great Kim Jong-un change his mind, right? And then try to go to Vietnamese or Chinese style. But as I said, when he first came to power, he tried. But he real it only take less than one year for him to realize if I do those things that I have to go, right? Uh, but so even, even Kim Jong-un changed his mind overnight. Uh, I think we have a problems of, of accountability. You remember I say no impunity. He already killed his uncle, and he already killed his half-brother and many others. So what, how, what we should do? If he, he changed his mind and opened up the North Korea, we have to give him uh, like forgiveness? I don't think so, right? So that is also the, my, dil my dilemma as well. So, however, we've been uh, discussing and we've been studying about how we can make a soft landing of the North Korea. Unfortunately, they went so far because they have become a nuclear state. So this is a big challenge as well. So I hope the United Nations or Euro European Union or even ASEAN and those multilateral setting or multilateral platform, I hope they can start to talk about uh, what international community can do something together. Even if we South Korea fully bore, bear the response, financial responsibility to help the North Korea out, I don't think they will take it either. So that related to the, the your questions as well. Um, Yoon Sung-yeol governments, they highlighting importance of accountability and the link between those uh, the nuclear or missile threat and the human rights abuses has to be solved simultaneously. And uh, that's where the President Biden and the European unions and South Korea and Japanese government uh, share our thought. But however, I want you to tell we South Korean governments also highlighting in Korean Tamdehan Kusang, audacious initiative. That is, if North Korea give up nuclearization process, and as I said, you know, threats come to the international community for negotiation, uh, though we will uh, give them the enough economic uh, assistance and uh, the humanitarian aid so that North Korea can get into the, the normal, uh, the right track to become a normal state. But again, North Korea will reject it because their policy is a kind of containing South Korea, and they didn't change their fundamental policy of communizing the South Korea. So I don't think we alone, South Korea alone, cannot do anything, unfortunately, for now. Therefore, I keep saying that uh, very closer consolidation with like-minded countries is very important, not only in terms of accountability, but also for humanitarian aid or economic assistance. Yes, maybe, Many of South Koreans, that's why we are divided. And uh, usually the human rights issue is a liberal value. But ironically, in Korea, conservative parties are talking about human rights and liberal parties talking about humanitarian aid alone, right? That is very political. So I think depoliticization is very important. But at the same time, like-minded countries, consolidation 
for promoting for the promotion of human rights is very important. And there, I want to expand the, our idea and our norms, our rule of law, into spirit into the those swing state who fluctuating their situation based on the international regional circumstance. So briefly, one more thing is, although there are big debate and big controversy even over North Korean human rights issues at the United Nations, at least up to now, the European Union has a proposal, proposal for uh, the, the declarations, uh, resolution on the, 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 the North Korean human rights issue have been accepted with consensus without a voting over the past 18 years. So I think that indicate universal value somehow uh, work. Uh, that therefore, human rights issue should not be regarded as a means or method to change North Korea. But for now, I want to highlighting as international ambassador, international cooperation on North Korean human rights issues. I want to highlighting we have to put uh, improving North Korean human rights issues, particularly vulnerable groups, is end the state for promoting human rights issues in North Korea. Thank you so much for engaging with slightly different perspectives on how to address the issue. Uh, we're running out of time, but I wonder if we could perhaps collect one, two questions. I've got two hands. Okay, sold. Um, please state who you are and keep them short. So one, I have many questions, but since we have no time, I just ask only one. And following on what Stein has already said, do you really think it's realistical? to expect any betterment of North Korean human rights situation while we don't have any leverage in our relationship vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. Normally, if you want a human rights dialogue of the sort, for example, that Norway had with People's Republic of China before, I don't think we have it now. Well, what you do need is some sort of interconnectedness. For example, the sort of active trade relationships that existed between Norway and China, and so on. So if North Korea would be somehow dependent on trade visa investment from the outside world. Then there would be some way to so somehow push it into the direction which is outside what considers more desirable. But Yun government doesn't seem to be interested at all at normalizing a sort of inter-Korean relationship and pursuing the human rights agent at the same time. It sounds very nice, but it doesn't make any realistic sense, I'm afraid. <laughs> Good morning. I served in North Korea. I was in Pyongyang from 2013 to 2015. I was inside, so I saw all what you you said, and I thank you so much for your presentation. So my question would be very simple. You talk about human rights of the North Koreans. I want to know your perspective about the defectors of North Korea that went to the South, and some of them returned back to the North and there's knowing the circumstances of the food, health, and all of that. And how do you see that the change, not the change, but the talk about human rights could be, you always speak it from the regime's perspective, from Kim Jong-un perspective, from all of the elite perspective, from the Labour Party perspective, but not from the people who are totally educated. But of course, uh, from the time of Kim Il-sung, all this education is could be wrong but they don't understand what's the meaning of like food, health, or all of the things that the outside were talking to them because of their isolation. So I wanna know what's your perspective about that? And if South Korean agencies, human rights agencies could be working in one day in the future in the North in order to help those people because they are the most capable on that. Thank you. Do you know how many North Korean defectors return to North Korea? It, it, it should be very few, right? It's, it, it's going to be very few. Well, 100 out of the 35,000. Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't know the, how many people returned to the North Korea. That I have to figure it out. But I don't think it's a, much less than 100. But, but still, I don't know where you are working in North Korea. But it must be probably in Pyongyang alone. Uh, I can give you one example. Uh, several years ago, UK ambassador to Pyongyang visited Seoul, and I had an opportunity to have a dine with him. And uh, I asked him what brought you over here. He said uh, he come oftentimes to South Korea to learn about what is going on in North Korea. So that indicate 
even if you are working in there and you are talking about North Korea, as I mentioned in there, we we know we all of us don't know what is going on about there. But I have to admit that some North Korean defectors, although they just came to Korea for freedom or food or with the family members, um, uh, they got frustrated because this is obviously capitalist society, and there are lots of the prejudice and etc. It's very working working hard. Working hard doesn't give them a a proper outcome, what they think about South Korean dream, right? So they, they might tempting to go back to the North Korea to some extent, uh, unless they got punished, right? And because there are still their family members over there. But I think that example is very small in number. And uh, I can even argue that maybe few numbers uh, is uh, they didn't, they are not dear defectors. They just came over here to get some more money and then just go back. So those things are controversial, and I don't think it's time for us to discuss about those things. But what I'm trying to tell you is information inflow, no matter what kind of issues. It doesn't have to be South Korean alone. But that information, more information inflow will give an opportunity for North Korean to think about. They are not only victims of human rights abuses by North Korean regime, but they can be an active agent, particularly younger generations, who have a power to change for the future generations. So I want we international community can do something together to empower those people, uh, including elite groups, uh, to change uh, their, 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 their life. So that is the kind of thing I would like to advocate as well. As my title, um, actually I'm not a full-time uh, government officer, because I'm unpaid and I'm still remain my full-time professor position, so that oftentimes I have to walk the border lines of the professor ambassadorship. But that means I'm a bit more frank, right? And also I want to have a more scientific proof instead of I just talking about some government position. But still, I have to tell you that Yun Sang-yeol government has a full intentions to engage with them, but. As you have to tell North Koreans, even under the Myung-bak government, after progressive government, they provoked us to challenge us, to block up the relation in the beginning, to, to give all the blame on South Korean government. I think you have to remember that one. But, and also, if we emphasizing the importance and seriousness of the North Korean human rights abuses, they have some change there. Believe me, according to those defectors I've been discussed, I've been interviewed with, and also when I read all those cases, since 2014, in the political prisoners' camp, well, usually political prisoner camp in this case, a labor camp or concentration camp, by the way, uh, they have uh, some indications to have uh, reduced the amount or severity of the torture. And they said, stop it. That is something against whatever UN or international community say against the human rights violation and et cetera. So that have us some indications for that. I do believe Kim Jong-un and his regime wants to be a normal state. They want to have international recognition. And they know human rights thing is the things they have to change because that is their Achilles heel. So I can give you one example. If we're talking about uh, like uh, nuclear problems and et cetera, they rejected immediately. Well, because, it, because of the US, uh, for the hostile policy, we have no choice but to do it. But if they try to get asked or attacked by the human rights issues, they try to give us some excuse and they try to explain things. So I think if we, international community, can have a collective voice not only pressure them, but remind of them of what is going on around the world, I think that will give us uh, some kind of lay of hope. And if we, the, the stronger we international community can do something together for accountability and constructive engagement together, I think that will be a clear warning to North Korean regime, and also that will be the great hope for North Korean ordinary people. Thank you so much, Ambassador. And unfortunately, we are uh, already over time. Um, but and, and like you said, it wasn't an easy way, uh, I think, to start the day. Uh, but I would like to thank you all three for raising really interesting points, different perspectives. And I'm sure that the Republic of Korea will take the um, membership in the UN Security Council over the next two years to raise some of these issues. So we'll definitely hear more about it. Thank you all so much, uh, and thank you also for, um, for joining us today for discussing this important topic. Um, have a good day. <laughs>